Welcome to the practice of being seen. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I believe that when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. In these curated discussions, I invite you to make space to see yourself. But here's a little warning. The practice of being seen might lead to deeper intimacy, less fear, and more creative, bold action. Are you ready to deepen your practice and be seen? Welcome back to episode 38 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. Today I'm joined by Melody Wilding. Melody is an entrepreneur, coach, writer, and licensed social worker. Drawing from academic research and real-life experience, Melody helps ambitious high achievers manage the emotional aspects of having a successful career. Her clients include CEOs and C-level executives at top Fortune 500 companies, such as Google and Hewlett-Packard. She also helps media personalities, tech startup founders, and entrepreneurs across a broad range of industries. In addition to her thriving private coaching practice, Melody's also a coach at BetterUp and teaches at Hunter College. She's a contributor at Forbes, Inc., Quartz, and Psych Central, and she's become a go-to expert in the areas of career, workplace psychology, work-life balance, women's leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more. Her advice has been featured in dozens of media outlets, and she was recently chosen by TEDx to give a talk on how self-doubt is a secret weapon for success at work. Forever a Jersey girl at heart, she lives in Kinalon, New Jersey. Welcome, Melody. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. And I think maybe a good place for us to begin is to let our audience know how we know each other. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Melanie and I met online um, in some Facebook groups, and we started connecting and developing a little bit of a friendship. And then when Melanie gave her TED Talk, I went to see her. And it was amazing. <sighs> I, I think I introduced you to my family as you this did. is my internet friend, Rebecca, <laughs> which I, I still cannot get over because if you're a child of the 80s and 90s, it still sounds strange, but it's completely true. Um, and I, I just, it meant the world to me. I was telling you before we <laughs> hit record that knowing that you were in the audience at this time when our friendship was was just blossoming. You know, we had had a few interactions on, on the internet and um, we knew we lived in fairly close distance to one another. Um, and you, you said, I'm going to be there. And just to feel that sort of support and being up on that stage, which was a extremely um, vulnerable and um, high pressure situation I had spent months preparing for. It was kind of, this was go time. But to know that I had you, someone who was, um, even though we we hadn't known each other for that long, um, to know that you were out there and you were cheering me on 
that was so grounding and it truly meant the world to me that you made the long drive to come out to New Jersey. Um, and I was very grateful that you also came out um, and shared uh, lunch with my family after. And it was just, it was a pure celebration. And um, for me, it, it really drove home the fact that um, I think a lot of us are lacking that sort of authentic friendship, but those types of uh, deeper connections in our life. And we may have hundreds of Facebook friends, but to have people that you could really count on in those moments, it was such an unexpected surprise and I am forever grateful for it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, it was such a great, view into you and your work and your life and your family. I mean, (laughs) all of the pieces. And to see you showing up and shining on that stage was, I mean, what a great way. I I was so inspired to go for the TED Talk and for so many other Mm -hmm. reasons. Plus, I have family down that way that I got to spend some time with, which was another perk of of my trip. But it was also like really just getting to see you and know you in that light, in that way. <laughs> and it was, you know, yeah, to get to hold each other up, to get mm-hmm. to help you shine. Yeah. And, and that's exactly, um, I, I, so my, my Ted X talk was about something, an issue I work, work with a lot, um, with a lot of my clients, but one that I was working through myself, which is imposter syndrome. And this sort of idea that anytime we're putting ourselves out there, there's that self-doubt that comes up with it, that worrying that I'm not going to be good enough or that everybody's judging me. Um, In my case, getting into this loop of self-consciousness where I almost um, (laughs) choke or um, I, it was highly likely that I would have fallen on stage. That wouldn't have been out of the question. You didn't. Um, I didn't, actually. But <laughs> you, it, a lot of people have noticed that I wore flats, which was completely on purpose. Um, <laughs> because if I had to walk out there in heels, it would not be a good situation. I can't imagine giving a TED Talk in heels personally. I I would lose my balance as well. There's something about needing to feel the ground underneath you while you're giving a speech of that magnitude. So I I asked this question of you after my talk when we were having lunch. Yeah. And I know you've thought about giving a talk yourself. And Uh (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to turn the tables here. Okay. Very early on in our discussion together. Go for it. But it's one of the reasons wh- I love you. Yeah. <laughs> what comes up for you when you think about, oh, you know, I'd love to get up on that stage or I'd love to give a talk about this. What, what comes up? Mm. You know, my palms start sweating. That's the first thing I notice. Even just thinking about it while you're asking me the question right now, my heart just started beating a little bit faster too. Um, but it's not just fear. It's also excitement. hmm yeah, there's there's so many different feelings. And I think it could be really easy for me to get lost in in feeling so much mm. and shutting down. Mm-hmm. As opposed to feeling so much and going, where's that going to take me? Mm. Um the two sides of that same feeling, you know, mm. it's it's there's just so much there. 
Yeah. And, and that's, that's sort of this conundrum with imposter syndrome is mm-hmm. learning to differentiate between what are our uh, self-generated or unrealistic fears. Where is our self-perception off or where are we projecting old stories, old baggage that maybe is, is being triggered by the new situation versus this, this, I think what you articulated very beautifully is this energy of being pulled towards something. Yeah. Because it's, it's a dance between both. It's, it's not an either or it's really a both end. It's, Mm -hmm. it's that I feel, I feel a lot and mm-hmm. feelings in and of themselves can be scary because we don't always know how to lean into them. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't always been taught that they're okay, the range of them. And when I'm feeling all of these things, it's easy to get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So what do I do with that overwhelm? Mm-hmm. Does it shut me down or does it lead me into all of the potential and all the things that could be? Mm-hmm. So how do you differentiate? How do you, what happens in that moment when, for example, I think about you leading your retreats mm-hmm. and for me, holding space for that many people is something that sparks that, uh, conflicted energy in me. But getting up on stage doesn't. Not so much. It's so interesting, isn't it? We yeah. all have, we all have our places where we shine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because when I have given speeches, when I have spoken, I've given in some cases the same speech in multiple different places, sometimes mm-hmm. where I'm on a stage in front of hundreds of people with lights on me, much like your Ted talk mm-hmm. and other times where I'm in a living room and I can see everybody's face. Mm-hmm. I do better where I could see everybody's face, which That's is now this is interesting as I'm hosting a podcast and I can't see anybody's face. <laughs> <laughs> But I really like the feedback. I like the real-time feedback. It, um, it helps me know how to show up and how my message is landing. Mm. I believe that part of the reason that I'm enjoying podcasting so much is because it's practice mm-hmm. in speaking to people whom I can't see. Ooh. I love that. I love this idea that there could be, there's that one person out there that you're talking to and this is going into their ears. And that's what I think is so interesting about podcasting is it is faceless, but it's also incredibly intimate. So intimate. Yeah. I don't watch videos the same way that I take in the audio of a podcast. Mm, yeah. You know, when I'm, when I'm watching a video, I'm either multitasking or, and I'm, my attention is really diverted mm-hmm. or I'm, you know, focused on what I'm watching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I listen to a podcast, I'm either just sitting still doing some chores around my house mm-hmm. on a walk in the woods or driving my car. <laughs> yeah. It's those everyday moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and my attention can be more on the sounds that are coming in, you know, like I'm, I'm hearing the words in a very different capacity than if I'm trying to pay attention to something on a screen. But that's, that's how my brain works. It's not how everybody's does. It's true. Yeah, it's true. 
What about you? Talk to me more about your experience. Well, I, I want to go back to this idea that you shared a minute ago about practice. Mm. And that's, that's a lesson I have learned um, over the years. So I do a lot of writing. And I'm very comfortable with expressing my ideas now in written form. But speaking was and is the new frontier for me. Um, and so I, I'm pretty good uh, off the cuff. So I'm pretty comfortable if you get me in front of uh, an audience for a Q&A or if I'm just asked to answer a question in front of an audience. I have no problem with that. And I think a lot of that goes back to the fact that... Um, this is the therapist in me. Um, my, my family, mm-hmm. um, growing up, owned um, entertainment businesses. So ah. uh, back in the days when people had uh, DJs at weddings and, and parties, and I spent all weekend going to uh, going to other people's parties with my parents. Um, Party crasher. Yes, exactly. But <laughs> they were really smart because they would. Um, so I was a very outgoing kid. I'm I'm very introverted, but I can I'm an ambivert, so I can turn it on when I need to. And uh, so my parents would send me out there to the dance floor to get other people dancing. Um, so that was I was a party crasher, but in the best way possible. In the best way possible, you yeah. Know, and, and I want to just go back a minute because as we were talking about this idea of practice mm-hmm. and how comfortable you are now, yep, with writing. And how speaking is this new frontier, what I really kind of held on to was that you're comfortable now, mm-hmm. meaning that you haven't always been comfortable writing. That's right. Yeah. And so this has been, um, it's been an evolution <laughs> since about 2013 was when I first started um, writing as part of my, as a way to grow my practice because um, I really wanted to, it was a way for me to get down my ideas. And as going back to this theme of practice and trying and really sculpting what my message was, even I was so uh, ingrained in the topics I wanted to talk about, imposter syndrome, self-doubt, perfectionism, uh, all of that good stuff that comes up for high achievers who are you know, rising to these different echelons of success. All of this stuff gets triggered, but I was so close to it that writing was a way for me to uh, work through what my message was, what, what my areas of expertise turned out to be. And um, I love how you talked mm-hmm. about this as sculpting your yeah. message. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's been an interesting process. And I think this goes back to the fact that even at first with writing, I was very uncomfortable with it. Just in terms of, are people going to enjoy this? Are they going to find this useful? Is this a waste of time? All of those classic questions that come up. Is my writing any good? Um, and I would spend hours perseverating over one article. And I think a lot of this goes back to the way that we're trained as therapists, 
counselors, helpers, is to really not put a lot of our, ourselves into our work. Mm-hmm. We're, we're sort of trained in, in school and, um, and in our education to be that blank slate. To really be to be centered on the client and their experience and be that mirror for them and ask those powerful questions, particularly in, in coaching. That's a lot of the work is guiding your clients through this process with questioning and, and reflective, uh, active listening, but not don't disclose anything about yourself. And there's an issue with that. There's a problem mm-hmm. in there. There's a huge problem. And Let's go there. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's, it's this paradox that I think as therapists, we are so well poised to be amazing entrepreneurs precisely because we have this innate emotional intelligence that's only honed more and more over time by, by working with clients. Um, we're experts in understanding that um, – deeper emotional layer of what drives people to want to change and seek solutions and really speak to the problems they have that can be used as a force for good. It doesn't have to be salesy and sleazy. But then there's this other message that says, oh, you know, private, privacy and ethics above all, which is great, but don't share stories about your clients. Don't share details. It's this very locked down and don't Stifling. share stories about yourself with about your yourself. About yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think what it ends up doing, these messages that we get as, as healing professionals, as helpers, as therapists, they end up blocking us off from really making authentic, real connection. Mm-hmm. It blocks us off from being able to truly connect on that deeper level that's full of trust and holding. Mm-hmm. So, Melody, I think one of the things that's really interesting in all of this is how do we, or how, how do you recommend that folks start sharing more? Mm. Because this is something that I know you are leaning into. I know from listening to your TED Talk, from being there in the audience, that this is very much the messaging that you have sculpted and that you are starting to put out there more and more in the world. Mm-hmm. And I know that putting yourself out there in the written form is something that you are totally an expert at and that you now train other therapists in how to do. But what about this part about sharing yourself? I know I have plenty of my own thoughts about this and we can certainly dive into a deep discussion mm-hmm. around this, but I'm curious to start with what you think about this and how how can folks start sharing themselves a little bit more authentically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very tricky because I think, too, no one wants to... There's this archetype out there of the wounded healer that, um, you know, you don't want to be working through your own stuff in the context of your work with your clients or that you were led to this field from a, from a place of having gone through trials and tribulations in your own life, but that's often the truth for many of us. And I think the more we can share that journey in a safe way, um, that's, that's beneficial for our clients. You know, I, I agree that this is, this is a place that we really need to, to play into a little bit more. I certainly have found myself sitting with clients in the room and 
I'll notice something about them, like maybe the way they close off or something about their body language or how much they struggle with different points of intimacy. And maybe it connects Mm -hmm. to something that I have some experience with in my own life. And I have found over the years that I have become more comfortable saying something to my client, like, I, I get it. I've been there too. So I do that in the room with my clients. And then I've recently started to do it more in blog posts that I've written. Mm -hmm. I've started to share more pieces of myself through this podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are certainly connection moments that happen in that kind of capacity. And when they do, they are incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that it makes us into better therapists when we can share ourselves more, even the wounded parts of ourselves that Mm -hmm. we have done the healing around Mm -hmm. Because we're on a similar path. And the fact that we've done that healing, well, that's that's what makes us awesome. Right. You know, right. that's what helps us know our stuff. That's part of our expertise. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and that's, that's where the wisdom comes in that you can share. And I think, I think what ends up happening is that we make this uh, erroneous jump that Oh, if I'm going to be sharing that with a client, then I'm going to be telling them answers or giving them solutions, and that's not my place. When it doesn't, it, that that's I think a, a false jump to make, because I'm sure when you're sitting in the room with your clients and that happens, and certainly this has happened for me too, just to be able to say, "I get it, I understand," and use it as a point of validation. And being able to say that phrase, me too, just to Mm -hmm. know that someone is not alone. That's one of the most powerful phrases, Mm -hmm. I think, in the English language. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. And so over time, as I've sort of (laughs) explored how to get more comfortable with this myself, um, storytelling is an area that I'm trying to work on more, particularly in my writing and my speaking, not necessarily even around self-disclosure, although um, I think that is very important as a point of connection. But being able to share to uh, what what my clients have gone through or the journey we've we've gone on together um, in writing, in particular, that's that's an area that I'm trying to nail down more. Um, Can you share a story with us? Is there something that maybe you have worked through that you have written or spoken about? Like an example that you could, you could bring us and our listeners into? Sure, sure. Well, so a lot of the, I work a lot around career and professional issues. And so I, I, I started to notice that I was falling into a pattern and, and certainly it is more of my style to be pragmatic and very solution oriented. But all of my articles were very much tips, you know, five tips for this and uh, seven strategies, do's or don'ts about how to approach your boss and be confident asking for a raise, that type of stuff. Very prescriptive, which definitely is my my through line. But I've been toying more with how to get to the story of the underlying dynamics that drive that. So just as an example, um, I work with a lot of clients who uh, 
once you peel away one or two layers of the onion uh, around their, their stress at work or you know, their relationship with their boss, there is some history there of maybe coming from uh, having a family history of alcoholism, for example, or some codependency going on in their, in their childhood where they just learned over time to sort of stuff down their own needs and not speak up and uh, not ask for what they want or uh, chronically just doubt themselves. And that's sort of been the way they've shown up in the world over time. And um, that shows up for them at work too, in some very detrimental ways that are, that are very practical. So, you know, not, not asking for what they're worth or not speaking up when they're being pushed over and, and having to do the work of other people. And so in noticing these stories and these threads that present from client to client to client, you're also helping them identify how they can break through these blocks. The work of, of this imposter syndrome is really, in many ways, flipping the lens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, it, it goes back to that practice element. It goes back to that we need to keep putting ourselves in these uncomfortable situations and not replaying the same old comfortable ones. <laughs> the same ones that fit like a glove but make us unhappy. We need to go to that growth edge yeah. because that's, that's when that, that lens, that's when those stories, I always like to say that um, something I <laughs> shared with you when we hopped on is that that change process, the friction hurts, but it can be such a good thing. It's such a great tool when we let it be a tool, mm. right? When, when it doesn't have to be something that just hurts us, that we receive in that way, mm -hmm. but when we let it be something that reshapes us, that sculpts mm. us, mm -hmm. you know? I'm thinking kind of like clay on a potter's wheel, Yeah, you know? the fact that the wheel is going round and round makes the impact of the hand on the clay really different exactly. than if the hand was just pressing into the clay. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's how we use it. It's what we do with it. Um, I think this is just such a great way to think about that feeling of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, the feeling of I'm a fraud, I'm not good enough. Oftentimes I find in my work that those feelings show up right when there's a growth edge about to present yeah. itself, mm -hmm. right? And we have a choice in those moments. There's always a choice. And that choice is, do I, do I hang out on that ledge and see how it shapes me? Mm -hmm. Or do I retreat because I'm scared? Mm. That's a perfect way to put it. That's, it, goes, um, it goes to what you were saying before about sitting with and through, you have to get through mm -hmm. the overwhelm. You have to prove to yourself that you can survive it. And this isn't so bad. And every time you think it's going to be the thing that, that decimates you. You know, I, I thought getting on that TED stage was, oh gosh, this, this is going to be, this is going to be the moment. Everybody finds out I can't do this thing. But it wasn't. It was okay in the it end. It was the moment everybody found out you could do this thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> but I mean that there's, there's seriously, there's this thing. And, you know, I'm going to include a link to your TED Talk in our show notes so that all of our listeners can see how well you did this thing. Mm -hmm. 
there's also this thing, right? Like you, you did it. You stood there. You were on the edge. And a while back, early in the podcast, I interviewed um, Eva Tenuto. She is the one of the co-founders of the TMI Project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the T- <laughs> right, the TMI Project. It's a group who comes together to talk about the shame stories. Right. And you write into these stories, the stuff that you would never, ever tell anybody. And then after like 12 weeks of writing and writing this through in a collective group and having some of the facilitators edit it, then you get up on stage and you perform it. Mm. Right. Oh my goodness. It, and I've been through the process myself. I'm actually working with them um, to become a facilitator at this point. And what I have discovered through this process and what Eva talked about on one of our early podcast interviews when we had her on was that there's something transformative that happens in that moment when you get on stage because the story has, it's, it's been with you and you've known it a certain way, but now as you tell it and you tell it, you have this moment, this performance moment or this publication moment and the way that it lands and the impact that you have on all these other people, like now that story has reshaped itself. Mm. That's a moment of being resculpted too. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Yeah, I, I do I, too. <laughs> I, I love that idea that it, it takes on a life of its own mm-hmm. once we put it out there yes. into the world. And it takes on a new way of reshaping us. Like mm-hmm. the fact that you got on stage and you gave your TED talk, that also changed you. Mm-hmm. The doing of it changed mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. It definitely did. It definitely yeah. did. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? Can Like the sure. fears that might have come up for you around giving your TED talk. I mean, I know you were talking about this very stuff. You were talking about imposter syndrome and all of that. Do you remember the pieces of your TED Talk? Do you, like, are there some parts that you, of your story that you shared there that you want to share with our listeners now? Sure. Um, it, was, um, it was a very meta experience. It, I, I, I like to say sometimes it's kind of like looking in a funhouse mirror because here I was talking about imposter syndrome while experiencing imposter syndrome <laughs> while it was, it was just, it never ended. And so... Um, while teaching about imposter syndrome. Exactly. Exactly. While using yourself as an example. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And then so at some point, um, that was a lesson in healthy boundaries. <laughs> to say, okay, you know what? This is this is an important issue, but at some point I have to stop overanalyzing it and get on with life. And as an overthinker, <laughs> um, as an analyzer at heart, that was a big learning lesson just in this entire process of rehearsing the talk, getting on stage and giving it, and the aftermath of it too, of the the wondrous experience of getting on stage, but then immediately after the now what? Okay, you did that thing. Now the bar is raised even higher. And, um, so learning to going through the whole, whole talk, the process of preparing and worrying, um, one reason why for a long time I haven't done a lot of public speaking 
is that it is incredibly anxiety provoking for me. Um, I, I tend to get caught up in the anticipation and worrying if it's going to go right and how it's going to go off and am I going to lose my voice that day and, and all of that sort of stuff. So for a while, I avoided it altogether, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I remember there was a point in your TED Talk where you also talked about like your fear of falling. Yes, yes. Yeah. Personal hangups really came to the fore with this. So I just in my personal life, I'm a pretty clumsy person. And I, uh, in my TED Talk, shared that since sixth grade, uh, in sixth grade, I was called Klutzy Mel just because I would randomly drop things. And I still do to this day. I don't even understand how I do it sometimes. Um, but it, it's just this hyper self-consciousness that happens to a lot of us when we put ourselves out there, even, even with writing or even with speaking. Um, there's this spotlight effect that happens where we are so focused on thinking that people are going to, in my case, hear all of our ums and ahs and, oh my gosh, I miss that word. Uh, and and that, was, that was part of what happened immediately when I stepped off stage. Um, I went into this flow state on stage where I had prepared so much that I had really internalized the talk to the point where when I got out there on stage, I just looked out into the audience and my mind went blank. And in terms of what you were cognizant of, yes. it wasn't that you got on stage and you shut down. Mm-hmm. I want to just be really clear yes. about that because <laughs> as an as an audience member, there was no shutdown happening. Mm-hmm. You were in a state of flow. In a flow. Yep. Yeah. And and that's what I think is interesting again too about this imposter syndrome complex or is that the anticipation is usually worse than the real thing (laughs) because when you get out there when you get deep into your story and I'm I I'm curious to hear if that happens for uh the TMI workshop attendees when you get into it you just start jamming on it well and I think this speaks to practice Mm -hmm. right because whether we're talking about a TMI attendee or we're talking about you on this on the TED stage, mm-hmm. you don't just get up there. Yeah. Right? It's not like the first time you've ever said these words. You've written them, you've edited them, mm-hmm. you've finessed them, you've worked with people on them, and then you've rehearsed them yeah. so many times. And it's in those moments of practice. Mm right? Like that is a huge part of this process, mm. right? That, that practice of it, the, the taking it into your bones, the making it yours, mm-hmm. the learning, like where, where does my fluctuation need to be here? Mm-hmm. What words am I going to emphasize and where am I going to get really, really quiet? Yeah. Where am I going to pause and let the audience breathe mm-hmm. or feel or laugh? Right? Like those, all of that stuff is a part of the practice. And some of it is really intuitive. Mm. The more you read your words out loud, the better you get at that. You start hearing yourself and Mm. that's part of the practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's, this was something I shared in my Ted talk is that, you know, there's, there's all these, there's this image of success that's out there that tells us, 
you know, just do this right set of things. Use these right hacks. Use these right tactics to build your practice. And guess what? You'll, you'll, you'll have a $100,000 a year business on your hands. It's not always that easy. <laughs> There's all of this background work that happens behind the scenes. The, like you said, the constant editing, the preparing, that almost making your uh, success, quote unquote, a foregone conclusion through all of that iteration, through that sculpting, through that, nobody, nobody saw the hours that I spent just re rehearsing to my poor family over and over and over again and getting their feedback and asking what landed, what didn't land, um, or putting aside time so I would to sort of manage my own um, anxiousness leading up to it, I would set aside blocks in my day, block out my calendar, create that mental space for myself, time when I wouldn't have clients, but also putting it on the calendar when I would be rehearsing. So, so that, that is, is so important yeah. because you, you made the space to practice. Mm -hmm. And I think with any skill that like, if I want to get good at playing the violin or if I want to get good at gymnastics or knitting, mm. <laughs> right, I can't get good at any of those things if I don't carve out the time to mm -hmm. practice them. Mm -hmm. Speaking is no different. Writing is no different. Thank you for that reminder. And I think this is, this is one of the places where imposter syndrome is so interesting, right? Because we feel like we should be good at all of this stuff that, you know, if, if we're good at it, we're just going to be good at it. Mm -hmm. And we forget that the people who we look up to, the experts, they've had a lot of time in the hot seat. Mm -hmm. You know, as Brene Brown would say, they've been in the arena. Yeah. Right. And we need that time there too. But the way to get there is to practice mm -hmm. that the practice, like this, the practice of being seen. This to me is a lot of what this means that mm -hmm. we all have visions of where we want to go in life. Mm -hmm. But in order for us to get there, we have to lean into where do I need to grow? What mm -hmm. edges do I need to push through? Mm -hmm. And not just push in a hard way, but push in like a, how can this reshape me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's this, this intersection of what are you naturally good at, but what commitments are you willing to make to get better? Mm. And I see this a lot with, with writing or creating when, when it comes to you know, practice building. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you, have to, you have to make a commitment so that you can live into those things. You know, I, I also, I, I totally agree with that. I also think just as much as we want to look at the things that we're really good at, yeah. there's also, and, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this because yeah. I feel like this is so much about your work. The places where we feel less good at things, where we feel like frauds, where we feel like we're not enough or that we're too much or whatever you want to label, you want to put on that. Those places also need our attention and our practice mm -hmm. because when we don't give it that, they become blockages. Mm. I love that idea. I talk a lot about this concept of strengths in excess. And again, this sort of myth out there that um, 
you know, double down on your strengths. Sure. It's a great thing. You know, do what you're good at, do what you love, all of that sort of jazz. But when I always say when taken to an extreme, some of those things can become a handicap. And for example, in my case, working a lot around perfectionism, it's wonderful to be detail oriented, but if you are rigid to a fault, it quickly becomes perfectionism. And so it's striking this, this balance of being aware of what you might be naturally good at, where your strengths lie, what you enjoy doing, what brings out that flow in you, but also balancing it with that sense of what, what do I want to work on? What interests me? What new vision for myself can I live into? Um, that, that where, what, what is something, a goal that you maybe have in your practice or something that you want to create that sparks a little bit of that, oh, I can never do that fear in you. That's the stuff you want to move towards. How? How do you move towards the stuff that creates the fear? Ooh. <laughs> well, if we're, if we're talking really specifically, so you mentioned... You want to talk about you? Well, oh, you no. Wanna... I okay. actually I want to talk about a, a theme that I see um, in our community here, but I, I think just in general, too, that... Okay, so you mentioned I work with um, other therapists and helpers to mm-hmm. um, help them in this area of getting press or, or doing writing, speaking, things like that. And a big secret I'll let you in on to getting a lot of those opportunities is simply just asking. Yep. <laughs> it really comes down to that. And again, you know, it comes back to the fact that we're, we're taught that if we do good work, it will be recognized and rewarded. That's, that's the way things are. That's the law of the universe and the way things work. Yep. But if we want to do those things that scare us, then we have to go ask for those opportunities. And that's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, I think that's such a beautiful reminder, though. So how, like, take us deeper into this. We, in order to do the things that scare us, we have to ask for those opportunities. But mm-hmm. this is counterintuitive. So how do we get ourselves to do it? Okay, so perfect example. Now I'll go to myself. With, with the TEDx talk, it was one of those moments where sometimes it had been something that was on my bucket list for, for a long time, giving a TEDx. And towards the end of last year, I got to a point where I was, I, I don't know if you've ever had this, but I got fed up with myself. <laughs> I was like, it's time to put up or shut up. Stop just talking about this thing. And it's, it's time to do something about it. And I leaned into sort of that. Are you familiar with Anne Lamont? Yeah. Okay. My shitty first draft. I, I always try to think of what's the shitty first draft attempt at this thing. So for most of the work I do, it, it literally is a shitty first draft. And I hope we everything can I write is a shitty first draft. <laughs> Marisa would talk about it as the self-focused first draft, but I think we're all really talking about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love the self-focused first draft. <laughs> it's so true. And 
So I said, what's the shitty first draft version of this? Mm -hmm. Where can I start? And I said, well, you know what? I'll just go to the TED website and let me see what's coming up. I took that little step. Okay. I did that. What's the next version of my shitty first draft? Okay. Well, there's a few in my area coming up. They didn't have applications. So what are my other options here? Well, I could reach out to the organizers. And that's exactly what I did. And that just very incremental, okay, I made it to this point. What can I do next? Stopping and recollecting. Um, ultimately, what ended up happening was that I reached out to the TEDx organizer and um, asked if she was accepting applications. Turned out she was. I submitted and the rest is history. Ah. Uh. So you put yourself in position, like it's about positioning yourself mm -hmm. and lining yourself up with the very things that scare you. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was giving a TEDx talk. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think to baby steps mm -hmm. and realizing that this, it doesn't have to be that linear path that is laid out there. So if I had just thought about what the linear path was to getting a TEDx talk, I would have never reached out to the organizer because most of the time you think, well, you know, TEDx is, they, they put out calls for application, then I apply, then I wait to hear if I'm accepted. And I think when you're an entrepreneur, which a lot of, a lot of the uh, folks in practice who are listening to this are, we're, we're entrepreneurs. You have to have that cap on to always be thinking about what is the gray in this situation? What is, what can I do that is off the beaten path that could put me in the line for those opportunities, for those chances? Um, and take them, take them when they come. I think that is just so beautiful to, to put yourself in the line to take the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that is like such a vulnerable place. Sure. So vulnerable. Absolutely. Which makes yeah. me also just kind of think a little bit because as, as we're kind of leaning into this, uh, when I feel like a fraud, when I feel really vulnerable mm -hmm. and I am the hardest on myself, mm. I also notice that in those places, that's where I probably feel the least safe. Mm. And so being seen and putting myself out there and exposing myself is, it could be really hard for me to do. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips for our listeners around how to hold themselves in those places so that they can make those leaps, so that they can take the next step? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I am a big, so as I mentioned before, I'm a huge pragmatist. And for me, structure and systems work really well. I can't say that's for everybody, but for me, it helps to create uh, a system around my writing in particular to know how many posts I might be doing in a certain month and just ship them. And knowing that there are more coming down the line, that this is not the end all be all of my body of work that's going to be out there. There's more coming get this done, ship it, put it out there into the world and let all of that body of work collect for you rather than 
making everything contingent on one blog post that's going to knock everything out, out of the water. Um, so really having that, that, again, making it a foregone conclusion, that creation process helps me just personally short circuit getting caught up in a lot of that self-doubt. Um, that helps very often. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the things that really is resonating for me that I'm hearing is there's a piece about knowing yourself in there, mm. knowing how you, how, how you lean into things, what mm. feels right for you, for you, that's making the lists, mm -hmm. but for somebody else, it might be journaling or processing or talking about it in therapy or making an art project or going for a run. Like there could be a lot of different ways that people work through their stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, it sounds to me like that's one of the things to kind of start with is how do you function best? Sure. And then lean into that as a way to work through this thing. Mm -hmm. That that becomes your tool. You have to know how you tick. Yeah. I think one more, if I can share. Yeah, of course, is, of course. Uh, much to the point of knowing yourself is being able to call yourself out <laughs> on your own BS. And uh, I talked about this in my talk, but it's something I, a tool I work with a lot is knowing what your, uh, knowing what your best hits are <laughs> in terms of your stories. What's the story I tell myself when I say I can't do things? And for me, that comes up all the time where if I get a new challenge, the automatic thought I jump to is I can't do this. I can't handle it. Um, I worry about my capability to rise to the challenge. For other people, it might be I'm not good enough or people are going to judge me. I'll be a failure. But start to identify what your greatest hits are so that when it comes up, you can realize that it's that inner protector, just trying to keep you safe, trying to say, hey, this is a risky thing you're doing. Not necessarily that you shouldn't go for it, but we don't, our, our brains don't like risk, our, our humans, we're, we're risk averse. And so whenever that crops up in any form, you know, body and mind is going to hop into uh, motion to try to prevent us from doing that thing. Mm -hmm. But it helps depersonalize it. It helps, it helps to realize that this is a passing thought that I'm ha having. It's not necessarily a, a reflection of my capability in this moment. I love that. I love that. You know, I, I often say that, you know, it's a way of looking at ourselves and mm. in, in that process of looking at ourselves and observing our struggles and where we're stuck, we can mm. see everything. We can learn everything we need to mm. learn, that fear and anxiety and shame or whatever is coming up in those moments. Those are our teachers. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And actually, well, one thing, I, the idea of teachers reminded me of <laughs> yeah. Something else I, I like to think of when you said, how do, we, um, how do we move towards our fear? How do we do that? And I think a lot of times, going back to the idea of being a blank slate and keeping our heads down and doing our work in sessions and uh, all that sort of stuff, is that we, we squelch a lot of that 
ambition or desire, that creative desire to do other things, to express ourselves through writing, through videos, through speaking, um, we lose touch with even that desire. We and, make ourselves small. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, creativity doesn't happen in that, in that contracted place. It happens mm-hmm. in a state of expansion. Mm. But I think a way to gain a little bit of that compass back in a very small way, if you feel like you're someone who's lost it completely, is to think about who are you jealous of? That's a really, I love (laughs) that question. Go deeper into this. Okay, I I want to hear more about this. Yeah. So asking yourself, who do you admire? Who are your heroes? That's all great. That's all, all well and good. But that question of who are you jealous of can be really instructive because those messier emotions of the, the envy, the frustration, the anger. The stuff we don't want to sit with. The stuff we don't want to sit with. That, that can be our biggest teacher because it's often pointing us towards those directions, those desires that we've pushed down that we've avoided for some reason. You know, this is, if it's, if it's okay for me to go here. Yeah. Um, when Marisa and I did our pivot episode where we talked about our unblending mm-hmm. on the podcast, I shared that working together with her mm-hmm. um, put me in a position where it was hard for me to become a writer, to be mm-hmm. a writer, to write. And I think a lot of that is that, you know, I looked to her and I was like, she's, she's good at this thing. She knows how to write. She's, she's good at that. And there was a piece of jealousy or envy that the writing part came to her really well. And that for me to organize, my, my first drafts were really, really shitty. <laughs> you know, they were really, really shitty. Um, and so for me to get to a place where I was ready to push publish on something or put it out there or share it with somebody, it brought up a lot of my own stuff. Mm. Um, and so as you're talking about this now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, just such an interesting awareness and an interesting process that as soon as we started having the conversation of unblending, I started publishing things that had been sitting in my Google Drive for almost two years. I noticed. Yeah. So like, you know, it's, um, it's just such an interesting conversation to be having. Um, as I come back into the podcast, as I start sharing myself more, but also just in this awareness of where our blocks come from, you mm-hmm. know, and what are the stories we tell ourselves? Because, I mean, these pieces were already written. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I hadn't been able to write yeah. when the two of us were collaborating, but it was the part about sharing it that I wasn't able to do. And what do you think shifted that gave you that permission? I stopped looking for the permission from outside myself. I started just giving it to myself Mm -hmm. because while we were collaborating, I was constantly seeking her permission Mm -hmm. that something was good enough to post, Mm -hmm. which is so funny in some ways, you know, and maybe a little sad in others. But once we started unblending, I realized I don't, 
I don't need her permission. I need mine. Mm. And I think another piece of this was in all of the messy murkiness of the two of us blending our stuff together, we had really different messages. And so where was this thing going to be posted? What was the message of it? What was its intent? Does it incorporate her part of the story? Or like, like all of that stuff would murky it up and perhaps would get in the way of that permission giving. Mm. Um, and so things just, just stayed stagnant. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not stagnant. You know, they've, they've always been in creation mode. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I think that part of this process is also looking to the things, exactly what you're talking about, like what makes you feel jealous, what brings up all these messy, murky feelings, and what kind of permission do you need to give yourself to go there? Mm. Yeah, or, or let go. Just let go. Yeah. Just let go. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So... Our conversation, the idea of putting yourself out there more, and this idea of of iterative practice, so get more tries at that, it reminds me of the idea of positive bids in relationships. Oh, like Gottman's work. And this idea, I I once heard someone describe it as boomerangs. And it comes back. You know, a boomerang, you know, you throw and it comes back to you. Right. And that this idea of um, quote unquote self-promotion, but just doing your creative work, you have to put a lot of boomerangs out there and some will come back and, and some won't, but the more you throw out there, the more that's going to come back. And it, it just struck me that, especially with the work you do with couples and around relationships and systems theory, that I wondered if you had any thoughts on that idea of just putting more bids out there and if you're seeing that you're getting anything different back. Oh, okay. I just got like chills through my entire spine with that question. (sighs) All right. So, um, you know, when I work with couples, I talk a lot about about how important even failure is because every time we fail, we have an opportunity to notice what didn't work mm. and work on the repair. And I think in many ways in, in other platforms, when we're putting ourselves out there, when we're, we're trying something new, there's only one way to know if it's going to land and if it's going to work and if it's going to resonate with others mm. and that's to do it. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, then we pivot. Or we figure out why didn't it work? Like there's important information in there. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways that's our own piece of the repair work because there's, there's different parts of this recipe that are both really important. Mm -hmm. There's the, the putting those bids out there. There's the boomeranging thing, but then there's this repair stuff for when it doesn't go well for when the bids weren't made. And, you know, I think we, we have to understand and be open to understanding Why is it working? Why isn't it working? Mm -hmm. How do I stay open in this process? What do I need to do so that I don't shut down or get defensive? What kind of self-soothing do I need to practice? Mm -hmm. And these are all relationship skills that I teach my couples. So yeah, I think think that's a great analogy. I think that's wonderful for us to lean in in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What were you going to say that's... Uh, It's it's interesting because I, I work just one-on-one with individuals and primarily women. And so a lot of this is 
again, once we peel away one or two layers of the onion of what's going on, sometimes they can identify that their hangups with confidence or putting themselves in challenging situations, they'll say, well, I just, I had it beaten out of me by, I had my confidence beaten out of me by a harsh coach or my mother or a bad boss I had a few years ago and I'm still recovering. And that comes back to that repair work and the self-regulation because to some degree, when we're putting ourselves out there to become more visible, to be seen, there is an element of chance that comes along with that. There, there is an element of, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll write, spend an hour writing an Instagram post that five people will like. And you know what? At the end of the day, it comes back to that idea of, for me, that self-preservation of having those boundaries to say, you know what? I tried, but it's time to move on. It's time to not make this the biggest deal. And just pick up and carry on. And that, to me, I think I've learned over time, that's part of my repair work. I love that. Yeah. That, you know... There's, there's so much different stuff that comes to us in this repair work. I, I was recently listening to um, a podcast um, called Apaya. I think that's what it's called. Mm. I don't remember. It's a Dharma podcast. Mm. And uh, a person named Joshin, I don't, even, I don't want to talk about him too much. Um, but I was recently listening to this podcast where someone was talking about a contemplative practice. Mm. And they were saying, they were talking about the place of uncertainty, Mm -hmm. the place that we don't know, all of the feelings that are so uncomfortable to lean into. Mm -hmm. And that when we can allow ourselves to go there, we invite in intimacy and creativity. Mm. Yeah. That that is, that is what unleashes us Mm -hmm. um, and allows us to expand into the world. That when we can't go into that place of uncertainty, we continue to play small. Mm -hmm. Well, I love this little rift. I love this little rift too. Yeah. You know, just to kind of go a little bit further with, with this idea that he was talking about, he was saying that the way that we sit when we're meditating, we're supposed to be practicing being the Buddha because we often play so small and don't allow ourselves that expansive energy that we could be the Buddha, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's what that whole contemplative practice is about. Mm-hmm. Which to me, like, totally shook my mind because I was like, I'm supposed to let myself be that? Mm-hmm. Like, I can be that big? <laughs> <laughs> that was, I think that plays into this uncertainty a little bit too. Absolutely. That we don't think we can, we can be that big. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious if you could share with us, where don't you let yourself be big? What stuff... what stuff gets in the way for you and how have you transformed parts of that in your life? Because we recognize it's all a journey. Oh my goodness. That's a big question. I know. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an all encompassing answer. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to answer it. Well, I think I think right now, oh man, 
This is tough. Uh, there's there's so many. <laughs> it's hard pick to, one. It's pick hard a, to pick choose. a small one. Yeah, don't, you don't even have to pick too big of one. Yeah, I I think one right now that I that I'm really struggling with is being able to, as I mentioned before, hold space for a large group of people. So yeah, yeah. I, I've never I teach. Um, so I teach students, which feels like a different dynamic. Um, it's more academic, but I have not yet become fully confident in my ability to, um, work with groups to host a course. And so I haven't fully put myself out there in that way. Um, I haven't ever done, um, I haven't ever done a launch for my business or, uh, any sort of program. It's always, I've always played it a little safe, I think. Um, and so I, I think I need to push myself more that, um, there is not this, I get caught up in all of the technology that's out there and everybody's launching these big programs and, um, I find myself at one of my, um, one of my strengths is input, but I think I fake myself out where I take in a lot of input about building courses and teaching online and, uh, creating group programs and all of that good stuff. But I'm not walking my talk with, with all of that sort of stuff. And so that is one way that personally, I know I'm, I am not letting myself um, are you actually not walking your talk or is that the story you're telling yourself? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, cause it, it seems to me like, like you're, you're launching things, you're putting yeah. stuff out there. I keep seeing stuff from you. So like, is, I'm wondering if part of this script is a little outdated. That's a good reflection. And, and that's what I mean. We, I, this is distorted. We all have this distorted image. Of ourselves. Because we can't see ourselves yeah. without reflection. Like mm-hmm. we, this is where I believe in community. We, mm. we need to lean into communities yeah. in order to be able to see ourselves. Yeah. It, it's just like, there's no way that you can have a really accurate view of yourself when the only lens that you see yourself with is the one where you tell yourself that you're not enough. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's a very good point. And that's why, <laughs> that's why I love our friendship. And again, you're just, you're incredible. And I think it's, you're really a model (laughs) for all of this, for putting yourself out there and and being that mirror and that leader in a community for other people. Well, really, I I also see you as a leader. So we'll, we'll keep this conversation going perhaps (laughs) offline, but this has been such a beautiful conversation. Like I, I feel like we could just talk for hours. We'll have to go away and retreat together sometimes so that we can. (laughs) Yes. I let's plan on it. That sounds delicious. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners how they can, how they can get a hold of you? And if you have anything coming up this fall? Sure. Sure. Best way to find me is at my website, melodywilding.com or um, pretty active on Instagram and Twitter. Same, same handle. And this fall, I'm going to be doing more trainings um, to help 
uh, therapists and helpers get press and uh, writing for their practice. So if you're interested in that, um, just reach out to me and I'll, I'll let you know when the next training is. Thank you, Melody. Thank you so much, Rebecca. My favorite parts of today's episode were the parts where Melody and I were talking with each other about how we work through our blocks and allow ourselves to grow, how we work beyond our fears and allow ourselves to get discovered and seen. For me, a lot of that is a really deep introspective dive. And for Melody, she puts a lot of systems in place. And I think there's a lot of space for you to discover what your system is, what your way is. Is it a deep dive? Is it through systems? Is it a combination of both? Melody has an amazing program. It's called Zero to Harrow. And if you haven't already found it or know about it or taken it, I encourage you to take a look at it. There's a link in the show notes. And I'm coming out with a brand new program called the Connectfulness Method Mentorship Program. There's only 12 spots available. It will run from November 27th till August 29th. It culminates in a retreat that last weekend in person in New York. And the rest of the program is online with lots of space for the holidays to be enjoyed and a lot of really deep introspective dives into all of that in-between stuff, between your professional visions and the stuff that is just holding you back and holding you stuck. It's very much about the practice of being seen. So if you're loving these conversations, I encourage you to make sure that you're on the list so that you're one of the first to know when the program opens, when the doors are open and I'm accepting registrations. The link is in the show notes. Next week, I'm joined by Joy Harden-Bradford, and I really hope that you will tune into that show as well because it is pretty phenomenal. And... You can follow The Practice of Being Seen over on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. And you can also find us at practiceofbeingseen.com slash podcast. I personally would be so grateful for your review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It will really help us to spread the word and to let other people know about the show. You've been listening to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, which is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Christy Hausler and Nicole Stevenson. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr. and produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another episode of the Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>